G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Today we're talking about the earth, but you're about to tell us why we're better off thinking of it as land rather than earth. So why is that, Tim? Yeah, the uh, earth we get in, in most translations, I really do think we're better off reading that as land. So it comes from the Hebrew term Eretz. The reason I prefer land is that when we use land in our common manner of speaking today, we use it pretty much the same way that ancient Israelites used Eretz. So the word that gets translated as earth in English translation. Because when we talk about land, it's functional. We say, you know, this is somebody's land, native land, state government land, private land, no man's land, homeland, Disneyland. Uh, or, or instead of ownership, we talk about usage. You know, we say agricultural land, bushland, farmland. Land exists functionally when someone owns it or works it or lives there. If it's not yours, then it's functionally non-existent. We, we saw what that looks like when we discussed the Babylonian map called Imago Mundi last time on the show. Uh, the world in that sense is only the land where you have dominion or where you live and work. And everything else is chaos and confusion because it's under a different government, a strange order that's unfamiliar. It's all about chaos and order and that sort of thing. So the idea of order is kind of central to all of this. Now, Earth uh, makes us modern people think about globes and planets and all that sort of thing, you know, third rock from the sun. Let's not forget that nobody had that image in mind until we first got pictures from orbit in the 1960s. Until then, it was purely conceptual. You know, it wasn't something you experienced. Yeah, that's right. And it's quite interesting. It's it's hard to imagine not being able to visualise a Earth that is spherical. And I guess because we've grown it up with our, with that our whole lives. But if you think like our grandparents' generations, for example, to them it just would have been a, a theoretical concept. Yeah, yeah, something you sort of you knew because the scientists said so, but mm. you, you would you'd have trouble getting that in your mind. And, you know, for those who came in late, ancient people, as we said before, were capable of calculating the diameter of the Earth. So they knew it was a sphere, but that didn't interfere with the fact that, functionally speaking, it's still flat. For all intents and purposes, it's flat. When you build a house, you don't need to account for curvature. You know, these are just simple considerations. There's no need to get technical when we're talking in terms of worldview, but that's not an excuse for assuming ancient Israelites were idiots. Now, the cognitive environment of the flat earth crowd is one where it's acceptable to take a 3,500 year old Hebrew source text and render it in Greek and then Latin according to a pagan cosmology that had the earth within a series of concentric solid spheres and to hold that view long after science blew it apart with facts only to side with the atheists in their jokes and take the whole thing literally at face value from a bad translation in spite of science and then take it all so seriously that some are prepared to break fellowship over it. And on the other hand, we've got the academic community in many ways tied to that higher criticism approach espoused by 19th century atheists and running with it seemingly without question. And back in January, I had the opportunity to pose a question to a well-known Christian scholar whose work is actually quite foundational to my approach to Genesis 1. But I asked if ancient Israelites really believed in a solid dome and the response I got was that the early Christians thought it was, the reformers thought it was, Luther's Bible had it illustrated in there, so obviously it was what they believed. This is coming from a specialist in ancient Near Eastern literature and culture. 
Honestly, I couldn't believe my ears. To be fair, though, there's centuries of tradition backing that view up. You only need to look at the early church's architecture and their representations of dome cosmology in the structures. A big metal dome in the roof to give a sense of the heavenly aspect of cosmic order in the church. That's not Israelite in origin. That's Greco-Roman. Now, I don't have a problem with the symbolism, as long as we recognise it as symbolic. But my question remained skillfully unanswered, because I wanted to know if ancient Israelites believed in a solid dome, not if early Christians did. In other words, did the authors of Scripture affirm dome cosmology? The truth is, they did not. And the proof of that, as we saw in the earlier episodes of this podcast, is that the biblical text doesn't support dome cosmology. Only the Greek worldview of the Second Temple period introduced that, and the Latin translation of the Septuagint misplaced the emphasis of the original text, stressing the Greek ideas instead of the Israelite cosmology. All that becomes abundantly clear once you actually engage with the source text, if you engage with them. Once the Latin was put into German, the stage was set for the reformers and later these post-Enlightenment textual critics to read the cosmology at face value from a so-called plain reading of the text and simply claim that ancient people were stupid, so what else could they have believed? On the one hand, we have the modern flat earthers, and on the other, the scholars telling us Israel were ancient flat earthers, and both are neglecting the original text to support their views. And that's why we spent so much time on it the other week. But now, now that you think about it, does that make any sense at all? Can you really do that as someone who claims that the gospel of Jesus Christ rests on the same authority? Can you say, let the word of God be true, and every man a liar? if you're going to make the text affirm your truth claims instead of its own. Not from where I'm sitting, Tim. Uh, though in terms of function, I guess we could say that the Earth is flat, effectively flat, most of the time anyway. Yeah, that's a good point, Chris. If we, if we had any evidence at all that the shape of the world was important to ancient people, I'm sure they would describe it as flat. But it meant more to ancient Israel, as we've also seen already, that it was dry. Because the water was the realm of all kinds of strange creatures, living things that exist where humans can't live, in a place representative of chaos and death. Flatness is not what characterised the land in the ancient mind, it was dryness. Dryness is what makes land habitable for humans and therefore functional as a place where we can live. As we noted in the previous episode, watery places are not fit for humans. But what about unclean spirits? Jesus said they go through dry places seeking rest. What are they doing? They're looking to make their home where people live. Remember back in our first episode, I talked about how I believe that the context for the final composition of Genesis 1-11 to was the exile in Babylon. Babylon was built on marshland. Anyway, let's look at our text now. Genesis 1, and verses 9-13. to 13. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the third day. Now the first thing we have here is God saying, let the waters. And once again, this is a passive statement and an indication that something is naturally occurring here. God doesn't force this to happen. But 
But what is happening? The waters are receding from the land and gathering together. This language suggests a similar concept to that which we've seen in other ancient Near Eastern texts. The primordial mound, the first dry land, is emerging from beneath the waters. But in other texts, the gods work to make this happen. Yahweh simply speaks, as we've seen before, but he doesn't command the land to come forth. He directs the water to go back. The emergence of the land is important because of when it occurs. There's no man raising it. There's no little g God making a place for himself. God is alone in the text, and that tells us that the land is his, not ours. That becomes an important point for the exilic audience because they are being reminded that God's land has vomited them out because of their idolatry. They had taken the land for granted and invited other gods in as if the land was theirs to do as they pleased with it. God reminds the Jews that the land belongs to him and it is by his grace that they dwelt in it. In these function-oriented texts, the raising of land out of water isn't meant to be taken literally. It describes the bringing forth of order out of chaos. We've already talked about the chaotic nature of water. Land is stability and life-sustaining power. The land exists functionally because God provides those things. Without God in charge, there is no land to speak of. Land is never nobody's land. There's no such thing as neutral ground. If it's land, it belongs to someone. That's the functional ontology. All land is owned. If it's not owned, it's not real. Your land is where you're in charge. You have dominion. You own it. You might live there or it serves your purpose. But what land are we even talking about here? When we read the Hebrew in verses 9 and 10, the word land is a gloss. It's assumed. It's necessary so that it makes sense in the English translation. But in the original, there's nothing there. Instead, the word dry is repeated. It says, let the dry, dry appear. God called the dry, dry earth. Yes. So why doesn't the text say earth or land? How does that make sense without having an actual object in the structure of the sentence? Mm, yeah, this is one for the grammar nerds. It's what they call a reverse metonymy. So rather oh, yes. than saying a noun that best represents its adjectival quality, for example, Jesus is my rock instead of Jesus is my immovable source of stability, a, a reverse metonymy replaces the noun with its defining trait. And as I mentioned earlier, the important thing about land is that it's dry. Land needs to be good for living because we can't live in the sea or the sky. The dryness is repeated to show that it's very dry, repetition uh, used to intensify the idea. And for an audience familiar with the marshlands of Babylon, the dryness is idyllic. It's clean, safe and secure. There's bugs, no smell. It's better in every way. <laughs> so the dryness that God brings forth is better than what uh, Marduk raised from the guts of a sea monster. Yep, yep, absolutely. And God calls it land, so now we have purpose for the dryness. We've just talked about the function of land, but until God calls it land, it doesn't exist. And that's why there's no land, until God calls it land. The next thing that God speaks about is the waters, and he calls them seas. This is going to be the second time that certain people jump up and say, see, right there, that's the chaos camp. The battle with the sea is the struggle against primordial chaos. It's Marduk versus Tiamat. It's Baal versus Yam. The, the first alleged chaos camp was the so-called gap theory, which I had a bit of a rant about on a previous episode. 
There's another one coming up in verse 21, but we'll deal with that when we get there. This is not a struggle against primordial chaos. God just speaks and the waters below the firmament get off his lawn. These waters, the Ma'im, are called seas, Yamim, and from that moment on their function as agents of chaos subservient to God is sealed. They're not agents with unbridled freedom. When God calls, they come. Where he sends them, they go. When he sets boundaries, they must respect them. And God saw that it was good. Things are ordered now. Good things here, bad things there. Good. So, what next? God has created a habitable, dry environment. The previous day, he organized the expanse of the heavens, providing the climate and allowing for weather systems to exist. So what do we need now? How about something to eat? Yeah, I could use a snack. No, I'm just asking the question. Yeah, well, I'm just telling you, a biscuit or something would be nice. No, it's just a suggestion. I was answering the question. What question? Do we need something to eat? Yeah, I could use a snack. No, no, you say that. What? Something to eat. Is there? What do you got? No, you say that. What? Something to eat. I was trying to answer the question. Look, if you haven't got any biscuits, you better let me answer the questions around here. And the answer is food. Oh, I give up. Food. God provides food, but pay attention to how he does that. This is a familiar pattern now. God simply applies purpose and function to the plants in, the, in that passive way that we've seen several times now. God doesn't make the plants. He allows them to come forth from the earth. It's the earth that produces the plants. And the important thing to grasp here is the concept of seed. So what do you mean? We all know what seeds are. What's so important about seeds? Well, it's not seeds per se, but seed. Rather than thinking about the hard things in the middle of the fruit, we need to be thinking about seed functionally, what it does, what it means. The Bible speaks of seed consistently, whether it be referring to plants or people. It's not about seeds or nuts or semen or sex. It's perpetuity. It's what will be left after you're gone. It's about ensuring continuation of what was established in the beginning. We need to keep this in mind because next time we encounter a different kind of seed in the text, this will kind of bear on our interpretation. The seed of the serpent implies a perpetuation of his kind as well. Speaking of kinds, again the text tells us that God desires order and he keeps everything in its respective category. Plants produce seed, seed become plants, and it's more of the same. Don't worry about the corn you plant in the ground. You're not going to get cactus. You plant a corn, you'll get corn. Don't worry about food. God's taking care of it. You raise a child, he'll be like you. You reap what you sow. Worry about that. <laughs> okay, so we'll leave our study there today and pick up again next week with day four of creation. And now it's time for your giant questions. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in the Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us in the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers@outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. So Danny asking us via Facebook asks, can you tell us about the connection between the Egyptian Ankh hieroglyph and the Nephilim? And I'm sure you'll correct my pronunciation of Ankh. No, you did pretty well. Yay! <laughs> okay, well, that's a great question, partly because it's an awesome rabbit trail that we can follow, which ties us in nicely to our core material here, and partly because it's one of the very few questions I've been asked lately that I'm not saving for our coverage of Genesis 2, 3, and 4. We get a lot of questions about all that. But yeah, incidentally, this came up because I commented on a Facebook post that I saw somewhere. 
and Danny asked for more information, so here it is. Now, everyone's seen the Ankh around, whether you think you have or not. It's that Egyptian symbol that looks kind of like a Christian cross, except that the top part has a loop on it. You find it everywhere. It's got a long history, and the problem with history, as most people do it, is that they read it backwards. I've said this before, and I'll no doubt say it again. Reading modern interpretation back into the past doesn't help you understand the past. It just exposes your worldview and your filters. That's how we ended up with the flat earth hypothesis. So let's dispense with the Gnosticism, the New Age mysticism, and all that key of life garbage that turned up late in the piece. Let's try and do this right. The Ankh is first attested in ancient Egypt as far back as 3000 BC, but the forerunner to the Ankh goes back even further in ancient Mesopotamia. If you're into Mesopotamian folklore, you may have heard of the tale of Enlil and the Anzu bird. This bird, called Anzu, the heavenly eagle, steals the Tablet of Destinies from Enlil and takes it up high and far away out of reach. The other gods try to retrieve it. Depending on the version you read, the hero of the story varies according to the date of the text. In one it's Ninurta, in a later one it's Marduk. You know, insert relevant deity here. The, uh, the Anzu, incidentally, is born of the union of heaven and earth. Now that should ring some bells for anyone who's been studying the giants. The important thing to remember is not the specifics of the particular version, but the general theme as a trope in literature. The heavenly eagle ascends to a high and therefore divine place, having taken from the god something he was using to rule the world. Now if we fast forward to Egypt and uh, 3000 BC, the depiction of the Anzu bird has been simplified from a feathered anthropomorphic demon with claws and wings and a bird of prey style hooked beak to a simple stick figure of an ascending bird in flight with its head uppermost spread wings and tail feathers outstretched and this is the ankh the simple pictogram is now a symbol of ascent toward the divine and power over destiny for this reason the earliest examples of it are found in association with royal and divine persons a famous example of the use of the ankh to convey ascent is in the carved relief at Dendera in Egypt, in the Temple of Hathor, which is called by science fiction historians, and I'm doing air quotes, um, the, the Dendera light bulb. Now this symbolic carving shows a sacred boat and a snake ascending from the middle of a lotus flower. But since the image looks to a modern person very similar to a light bulb, well, some people just can't let go of that. If it looks like a light bulb to me, then it must be a light bulb even if there is an inscription right there in the carving that says the snake ascends from the lotus of the ship. The hieroglyph translated as ascends is the Ankh. And as I said before, this is why we do history forwards, not backwards. <laughs> so the, uh, the ancient aliens, that guy was wrong? Oh, yeah, it wouldn't be the first time either. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the Ankh symbol is not just a simplified picture of a bird. It's also a visual representation of the cosmic tree motif. For those of you who have read Answers to Giant Questions, this will be familiar turf. The tree reaches up to the sun in its attempt to achieve divinity. At the top we have the solar deity, head of the pantheon, and beneath is the tree reaching up towards the heavens. There's a famous passage that tells a cosmic tree story. It's very well known. I'm talking, of course, about Daniel 4. Now here's part of the passage uh, in the King James Version, from uh, verse 17. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones 
to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof, forasmuch as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. The king spake and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. It is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown, and reacheth unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher, and holy one, coming down from heaven, and saying, Hew the tree down, and destroy it, Yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, in the tender grass of the field. And let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquillity. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honour of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. Alright, so that's the end of the passage. Now we all saw the cosmic tree there, right? But uh, did you see the Anzu bird? The watchers are observing the king from on high when they see him go too far, attributing his success to his own power and majesty. As a result, the power to rule the world is taken from him, snatched away by a creature that has the power to declare 
and enact the king's destiny. And what does Nebuchadnezzar resemble after his seven years of madness? It says, His hairs were grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar physically resembled the Anzu bird. That's something I've uh, never seen before. Yeah, two powerful ancient tropes overlap here in Daniel 4 to convey the age-old story of the king who tried to be a god and got cut down. On the one hand, Nebuchadnezzar is the cosmic tree reaching upward to claim divinity. On the other, his destiny is snatched away from on high while he descends into madness and eventually comes to resemble his assailant. How art thou fallen? Here's another example from scripture, again familiar to readers of answers to giant questions. This time we don't see the Anzu, but it's an Egyptian context, so that aspect of the trope is less relevant. Here it's all about the tree. We're going to read Ezekiel. God is using a motif that the Pharaoh can't miss because it's embedded in Egyptian culture. Here's the text of Ezekiel 31 from the King James Version. I'll just read verses 2 to 11, finish with verse 18. Son of man, speak unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude. Whom art thou like in thy greatness? Behold, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches, and with a shadowing shroud, and of a high stature, and his top was among the thick boughs. The waters made him great, the deep set him up on high, with her rivers running about his plants, and sent out her little rivers unto all the trees of the field. Therefore his height was exalted above all the trees of the field, and his boughs were multiplied, and his branches became long because of the multitude of waters when he shot forth. All the fowls of heaven made their nests in his boughs, and under his branches did the beasts of the field bring forth their young, and under his shadow dwelt all great nations. Thus was he fair in his greatness, in the length of his branches, for his root was by great waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not hide him, the fir trees were not like his boughs, and the chestnut trees were not like his branches, nor any tree in the garden of God was like unto him in his beauty. I have made him fair by the multitude of his branches, so that all the trees of Eden that were in the garden of God envied him. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Because thou hast lifted up thyself in height, and he hath shot up his top among the thick boughs, and his heart is lifted up in his height, I have therefore delivered him into the hand of the mighty one of the heathen. He shall surely deal with him. I have driven him out for his wickedness. And then verse 18. To whom art thou thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? Yet thou shalt be brought down with the trees of Eden unto the nether part of the earth. Thou shalt lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with them that be slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, saith the Lord God. Yep, I definitely caught the, uh, the tree symbolism there. Yeah, well, this passage couldn't be clearer on the cosmic tree language. The tree is a divinized king who has a place on the divine council, but overstepping his bounds, he's disgraced and destroyed. In the book, I talk about the reference to the Assyrian and how this same name is applied to Nimrod elsewhere in Scripture. What should be clear now is that the idea of the misguided human endeavour to become godlike is an attempt at an ascent to glorification. 
The Ark symbol represents this connection between humanity and deity, connecting heaven and earth. The vocalization of the Ark as a word was similar to our modern pronunciation based on the spelling when written in script, which has remained largely unchanged aside from differences in dialect. The basic triliteral root, A-N-K, remains and is found in many ancient Near Eastern languages. It shouldn't surprise us then to find that this root appears later in Greek and also in Hebrew. What may surprise you is what that means for our interpretation where we find it. When the Greeks emerged from that Egyptian culture, they called their divinized god-kings by the title of Anax. These were said to be the sons of Zeus Arbios. Arba means tree. Sound familiar? This practice was not limited to the Greeks. It was also found in Anatolia, where the Hurrians had come out of Mesopotamia. And that leads us directly to the biblical sons of Anak. So Joshua chapter 14, uh, verse 15a. And the name of Hebron before was Kiriath Arba, which Arba was a great man among the Anakim. And in Joshua 15:13, And unto Caleb the son of Jephunneh, he gave a part among the children of Judah according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, even the city of Arba, the father of Anak, which city is Hebron. And again in Joshua 21, verse 11, And they gave them the city of Arba, the father of Anak, which city is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, with the suburbs thereof round about it. The biblical Arba was a man, probably a divinized king of the Anakim. He would have been contemporary with Og of Bashan. Wasn't Og the guy who had the really big bed that was like 13 feet long or something? He was a giant? Yeah, yeah, he was. But the bed wasn't made to fit him. It had another purpose that we might talk about another time. Despite the Greek connection in the uh, terms Anax and Arbios, there is still a distinctively Egyptian flavour to the accounts of the Anakim, as seen in Numbers 13.22. And they ascended by the south and came unto Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai and Talmai, the children of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Note that the three names mentioned are Egyptian names, and the author gives us some Egyptian context by mentioning Zoan in connection with Hebron. And, as if we needed reminding, the Anakim were giants. Uh, when we read Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, The Emims dwelt therein in times past, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakims, which also were accounted giants as the Anakims, but the Moabites call them Emims. Emim means terrors. And Deuteronomy 9 verse 2, A people great and tall, the children of the Anakims, whom thou knowest, and of whom thou hast heard say, Who can stand before the children of Anak? So what does Anakim mean in light of what we know about the history of that title? Well, it doesn't mean long-necked. That's a play on words that takes into account the Hebrew word for neck and the fact that they were tall. The Anakim were the ascended ones or lofty ones or something like that. The title doesn't mean tall, but it helps that they were tall anyway, as we saw in Scripture. It doesn't mean high up, but it helps that they lived in the mountains of Canaan. This is about that ascent to divinity on human terms, first by Nimrod at Eridu, then by others in the cult he started. 
Performing necromancy rituals to use death magic for power, the inhabitants of Canaan transformed themselves into physical giants, indwelt by the spirits of the dead Nephilim. And that is why the author can say in Numbers 13, verse 33, And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Now, that's all we have time for today, so I'm not going to tell you about how the name Enoch preserves this aspect of the Divine Ascent traditions. You can read Answers to the Giant Questions for that. Well, Tim, you certainly know how to leave us in suspense. <laughs> it's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.